0: RAC's post Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. We'd like to share an interview with you from the recent past. This story was proven popular among fellows at the time, and we believe new listeners to RAC's Postdoc Podcast will enjoy it too. We do hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Nitin Verma from April 2017. If restoring sight is a life transforming gift, Dr. Nitin Verma and his teams of volunteer doctors, nurses, and technicians have, for 16 years, case by case, transformed the lives of thousands of men, women, and children in East Timor. Dr. Verma founded the East Timor Eye Program in the year 2000, just as that poverty stricken nation was emerging from years of conflict into independence. Eye disease was rife, and medical facilities had been largely destroyed. Yet Dr Verma drew on his persuasive powers and personal determination to build his eye program from the ground up. From makeshift clinics and sleeping on the floor in the early days, the eye program today has itself been transformed. He talks to Heather Dawson about the program, starting with the debilitating
1: impact of eye disease at a personal level. It's been demonstrated time and time again that both poor eyesight and, of course, blindness uh, has a very major impact on not only the quality of life, but also on the life expectancy of people. We don't have any uh, government services in Timor like we have in Australia to look after people who are partially sighted. And it depends really on the family to look after them when eyesight fails. And from what I've seen Patients or family members who have poor eyesight are uh, looked after by the family. They're often relegated to uh, a place in the house where they're fed and clothed. But not being productive, members of the family really don't have the status that they've enjoyed in the past.
2: So the gift of eyesight for them would be life transforming?
1: Yes, I've seen it myself on a number of occasions. uh, people who come in completely blind often are uh, not as well nourished, have uh, lost weight, uh, are very often depressed, and um, it's a pleasure seeing them once their eyesight has been restored. Even grandmothers who, uh, or grandfathers who have contributed to the family and community for a very long time suddenly bounce back and uh, become productive members once again.
2: Well, in the year 2000, when you started up the East Timor Eye Program, could you describe the state of the medical facilities there? Because I understand the health infrastructure had been pretty much devastated in the uh, lead-up to independence.
1: Yes, the health infrastructure was basic for a start, and uh, during the uh, referendum or after the referendum, when the Indonesians left the hospital, including the eye center or the eye clinic, was completely destroyed um, and equipment damaged. So when we went there for the first time in, uh, I went there in April 2000 when I was based in Darwin and we found that there was really, except for a little bit of equipment which one of the nurses had managed to save, everything else was pretty much destroyed. Even the cushions on the chairs were cut. So we started from zero.
2: How did you begin the process of gathering teams of volunteers to visit East Timor? Did you get a willing response from doctors and nurses in Australia?
1: Yes. uh, The person who invited me to Timor was uh, Dr. Alex, who was uh, tasked to set up the WHO mission in Delhi. And uh, he introduced me to a lady by the name of Sister Pauline, who was the head of Red Cross. And I signed a small MOU, which was the smallest, shortest MOU I've ever signed. It had four lines and that allowed us to work at the hospital in Delhi. And based on this assurance that one had a place to work, I uh, contacted my friends when I went back saying, Listen, we've got to go to Timor. And I had a, a long line of people who wanted to go. I had help from the Royal Darwin Hospital, from the Red Cross in the Northern Territory, from various companies, from the mother's union, from just about anybody who heard about it, they were all very supportive and willing. So our first team were two ophthalmologists, uh, two nurses and two optometrists, and we would go there maybe between three and four times a year.
2: And you'd have to pull together the equipment that you needed as well, I suppose, wouldn't you?
1: Yes, uh, we did that. We borrowed some equipment which was never returned. We bought some equipment, we got donated equipment. So all that put together and uh, I must say that the help that we got from the United Nations, from Air North, from Qantas uh, at that time helped us get all this across. Well,
2: so how did you raise the necessary funds to get the I program off the ground?
1: There was no organized fundraising for this. So for the first four years, we sort of went from donations from companies, donations from people, quite often putting our own money into it. And then uh, Rex came on with, they had some money, which uh, was given to them as part of the Atlas program by the government. So that helped. Then uh, in 2005, we uh, got a big break when... We had the president Zanana Gusmão visiting and um, we made a pact that we would raise some money and in that one week that he was here, we raised three quarters of a million dollars. So it's been a process that has been rather opportunistic. I think we've been very lucky uh, because we have the goodwill of people and that gave the program a profile, which then attracted more funds. We got money from the Australian government through the Vision 2020 initiative, from Lion Sight First, from the Eye Surgeons Foundation, from the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists, from the Tasmanian government, from various state governments, from individuals. So it's been something that's uh, just taken its own form and attracted money as we go along from various organisations.
2: So how much have things changed for the eye programme since uh, the early days? Because I understand uh, that in those early days you'd sleep in the ward or if you could afford it, you'd upgrade to a container with air conditioning, for example.
1: Yes. Well, things have changed a lot for the I program because things in Timor have changed. For the first few years, we would sleep in the ward because there was no accommodation. And then as the ward was required for patients, we uh, shifted to uh, hotels, which soon became available in town. They were, of course, very expensive because they were all occupied by the UN. But now we stay in a place called Hotel California, (laughs) which we've been staying for many years. And the advantage there, of course, is it's, it's in the quiet part of town, but also anybody who wants to meet us knows that when the I-team is there, they are in Hotel California. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Does it take a certain type of personality to work in circumstances uh, which would be pretty different to working with the facilities at home?
1: Yes, uh, we've seen that and that really decides on who should continue coming there and helping out and those who shouldn't because we've seen a lot of people who are you know way up in their field and recognized experts and leaders but once they're outside their comfort zone some of them find it very difficult to work and contribute and it's these people that we take advice from in handling a case but not we don't ask them to come and work there, because the conditions are quite different. You know you're not it's not the same stool that you sit on, It's not your microscope that you're used to. You don't have all the investigations. People who go there need to be willing to admit that they don't know what's going on and confer with each other and find the best way to sort the problem out. Very often, there's no MRI or some sophisticated uh, technique for uh, evaluation, although we are slowly, at least in eyes, we are slowly moving to bring the whole program up to the same standard as uh, anywhere else but sometimes equipment doesn't work and uh, if you're not willing to go and think beyond or outside the square I think one doesn't really have a place in countries like this.
2: Dr Verma you've said that your long-term objective has been to make yourselves redundant as you train up local East Timorese to take on the mantle with the I program. Is that objective being achieved?
1: I believe so because we have set many targets many deadlines in the past And then always push them forward by three years or five years because uh, we felt they were not ready. But right from the beginning, it was our objective to make ourselves uh, redundant, to actually construct a program, run a program, populate the program, and then hand it over to the East Timorese uh, so that they could achieve true independence in uh, eye care.
2: Now you and your team, Dr Verma, have performed many hundreds of eye operations a year and the work continues, of course. Do you believe preventable blindness can be eradicated in East Timor within a lifetime? And how would that make you feel?
1: Well, when we started going there in the year 2000, we would do between 40 to 50 surgeries a day. And uh, we would work the week carrying out between 200 and 300 operations and then when supplies were exhausted, we would come back. People often ask me now when I go and they say, well, uh, how many cases did you do? And I said, oh, well, maybe I did three or four. And they sort of feel that I'm not working there. But what they don't realize is that all these surgeries that we used to do then are being done by the team ophthalmologists ophthalmologist now. So we don't have to do personally or the visiting teams don't have to do very much. They only do cases that are difficult, the cases that require teaching, cases that the local of ophthalmologists can't do that has now reached a stage where it's a steady state of surgery which is being carried out during the whole year it's not only episodic when the teams go there and then nothing happens in between this transition has been very positive and uh, the uh, number of cases that are being done is on the increase Recently, there was a RAB survey, which stands for Rapid Assessment of Avoidable Blindness, and compared uh, what happened in 2016 with what the state was in 2012. And they found that the rate of blindness in Timor has halved, which I think is a great achievement for over all these years. The uh, exact causes that remain for people who have low vision is still being worked out. And what we are now working on is to address those causes. Some examples of uh, areas where help is needed or where future directions should be are uh, the blindness from diabetes, which is an emerging problem all over the world, and Timor is no exception from glaucoma, which is still a disease that we have not really addressed very well in Timor as yet because it's a complicated way that is needed to uh, diagnose and then treat the problem, which is an ongoing treatment. We're also looking at blindness in newborn children because as the maternal and neonatal services improve, younger and younger babies are surviving and they run the risk of blindness. So things are changing and I believe that we have uh, gone far away from uh, the episodic uh, spurts in surgery and spurts in treatment to something more of a steady state. And now that this has, you know, the ripples have settled, this has found its own level, given that the services we now offer are not only in Delhi, but also in 13 other districts and sub-districts all over the country. So I believe that uh, while nobody can ever reach a zero state in terms of blindness, but as long as we are able to take care of blindness that comes up every year and keep the prevalence of uh, low vision and blindness at a low level, we would have achieved this. And given the infrastructure that we've got, the commitment that we've got, and the fact that Timor has a population of 1.2 million, I believe that at least in most of our lifetimes, we would be able to control preventable blindness in Timor.
2: Well, last question, Dr. Verma. What are your plans for the future? Will you continue to remain involved in the I program?
1: Well, my involvement with Timor is more than just Eyes. I uh, have many other programs going on there because I'm also the consul for Timor in Tasmania. So I'm involved with education. We have a program called Toys for Timor. We have a program called Strings for Timor. We've got students coming in and out of Timor to Tasmania. For training. We're now getting further involvement with the medical faculty and the University of Timor-Leste. So while the I program might have uh, reached a stage of maturity, I don't think one would ever turn away from it and one would continue to remain involved more as a friend because all the people who've been trained are basically friends now and uh, will certainly be there for them if they need anything. Dr. Nitin Verma, RAC's post-op
0: podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.